John, how are you doing? It's great to have you on the show. Great, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah. So for those uh, who are just kind of tuning in to the show, maybe haven't heard an episode yet, this is the Founder Hour where we talk with founders like yourself and, and share their stories and sort of all the things that they've picked up you know, throughout their journey. And so where we like to always start is from the very, very beginning to give some context. Um, so kind of give us a little bit of a rundown of you know where you grew up and what young John was like. Oh, wow. So we're going way back. We're going way, way back. Old school, old school. Um, yeah, so sure. I grew up in a, a village called Rural Ridge, Pennsylvania. Literally, the word rural was in the first half of the name. That's how rural it was. Uh, middle of nowhere in the hills of Pennsylvania, about uh, 300 residents. I, I like to joke, but it's not that a, a joke. I was related to like 20, 25% of, of the village. Um, my grandfather uh, immigrated here, was like the the foreman of the coal mine and, and sort of when that shut down was sort of the de facto mayor of this little tiny village. Um, got bused to school an hour each way in high school um, over to a pretty good public school in the suburbs of, of, of Pittsburgh called Fox Chapel. Um, but childhood there was, was great. You know, it was, uh, we had a lot of land, a lot of hills, um, a lot of outdoor adventures in nature. Um, and I was a very, uh, let's say, uh, creative child. I liked to create things, create stories, build things out in the woods, do sort of big adventures with my brain and my body. Um, and I played a lot of sports. I played competitive soccer up to the Olympic development uh, level. Um, and uh, I was always very driven, very um, excited to sort of compete in the, in the game of life, right? Whether that was school or sports or, you know, academic things or whatever it might be, always sort of wanted to be the, the best at whatever it was that I, that I could be. John, what did your parents do? My, uh, my father was a public school teacher, um, elementary school for most of, it was high school before I was born and then an elementary school for most of my life growing up. And my mom was, uh, was stay at home um, until probably I was in high school and she went back into the workforce. Uh, she, did, uh, she did technical sales work um, mm -hmm. for sort of the second half of her, of her career. She was a school teacher as well before uh, having my sisters and I, where she took a break for, for a couple decades. Um, so uh, a pretty, you know, middle, middle sort of of the road income home. Um, in our little village, I think we were con considered wealthy because there was, you know, uh, there, was a, there was a salary from a public school district, I think in the broader, in the broader scheme of things, lower, lower middle class. Yeah. And like growing up in such a small town, I mean, were you ever exposed to anyone who had quote unquote, like made it like, you know, kind of maybe got out, did something big in the world and, and where you're just like, I want to be like that, just like that ambition. Or was that like something that you had in you? Yeah. So I would say not in my little village, there was definitely nobody living there who sort of made it. People that made it didn't live um, in rural Ridge, Pennsylvania, um, such a small town. But the school district I got bused to, just because I got lucky to live within the, the borders, really, that, that was a district where, you know, Bill Cowers uh, kids went to school there. Um, and, you know, executives for large corporations in the greater Pittsburgh area uh, went there, um, you know, different, uh, different players for the Penguins over the years. The, um, the uh, general manager of the Penguins, Craig Patrick, his son, CJ, uh, went to school with me in middle school and in high school. So I got exposed, you know, to, to folks who had you know, varying levels of success um, through primarily the high school sort of age, but in the more middle school, junior high uh, and up, not, uh, not elementary school where I was more out with sort of my, my compatriots out in the, in the deep, deep suburbs. 
Yeah. And having a parent who was a school teacher, was, was there like a lot of pressure to do really well in school? I think I saw you were valedictorian of your high school, so you must have done pretty well, but um, was there like a lot of pressure on you or, or not really? Yeah. You know, not, not from them, all from me. Um, they definitely, you know, had the rhetoric of my sisters and I, that school was important, that we were all going to go to college. Um, that that was an important way to sort of change your future. And it was sort of a, a, an expectation. Um, but almost all the pressure that I had to, I, I got my first non-A grade as a sophomore in college. Um, and it was sort of all internally driven. I just wanted to be great at stuff. Um, and school was, you know, part of that for me. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to pursue in college? Um, you know, not really. Uh, when I when I got to Notre Dame, I um, I honestly looked at the sort of list of options and I said, what is the easiest major for the highest starting average salary? It was a very ROI-based calculation because I didn't want to just do the academics. I wanted to do all the other stuff when I was in right. school. And to me, all that was just as important. So Finance was my major. Um, I think I think it was a fine foundation for what I ended up doing. Not necessarily at the time um, a strategic choice in terms of I know that this is what I want to do with my life. Much more practical, um, and I sort of fell into during my education this track of sort of investment banking or you know equity something, but much more from sort of the investor angle. Where Notre Dame had a really strong program uh, called Applied Investment Management, which sent a lot of bankers to Wall Street. Um, it was sort of a tried and true method. Um, as I got deeper into that process, though, also got exposed to more of the Bain, the McKinsey, the BCG consulting side of things. And that really sort of piqued my interest a lot more as a, as a senior and ended up being what I did you know, post-graduation. And, and you mentioned you know, wanting to do it all like in college besides just the academics. Like, What else were you involved in on campus? Yeah, so really engaged in a lot of things um, at different times, different things. So I was in the Notre Dame Glee Club. I was also on the uh, Notre Dame football team for an offseason. I was a walk-on kicker. Um, I was on the Notre Dame soccer team when I first got there for all of about two weeks before I got cut. Um, so played a lot of club soccer while I was there. I was in student uh, council, effectively. Um, uh, as a junior and a senior, I was in uh, Bengal Bouts, which is the boxing club. Uh, raises hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for, for missions in Bangladesh. Um, and, uh, and so boxed for a couple of years. Uh, I just, I just sort of tried to do all the things and it's kind of generally how I've lived my life, both, you know, before and, and after college is sort of, to me, you have, you have one, one go around here and, and why not make the most of it and sort of experience as much of life as, as you can. And so yeah. just a lot of, a lot of a little, Right. I, I don't, mm -hmm. I'm not a specialist. I, I very much appreciate and I'm, I'm amazed by people who can go deep into a subject and, and dedicate their life to it. Right. If you, you're yeah. an economics professor or you're a figure skater or whatever you are, if you're like real deep and narrow, I, I'm, I'm amazed by you, but I don't understand you. My brain does not work that way. <laughs> You know, you and me both, and I'm just curious for yourself, like, has that ever been a struggle, like growing up or like throughout your life in terms of, you know, having so many different things, do, you know, going on at once and having maybe per perhaps a lot of interests, like, and, and, and maybe not having, I don't know, a sense of direction or knowing exactly like what path you want to go down and just trying a bunch of things, but not really getting too deep into one particular thing. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I thrive on that. I actually really think that's super fun. So for me personally, it was never really a struggle, but for my parents, it was absolutely a struggle because I would need to be three places on the same night after school, you know, no driver's license. 
I also want to play on this team, mom. I also want to do this thing, dad. I'm going to be in this play as well. Like it was just hard to sort of schedule my life because there was just so much going on all the time. Um, I think from a career perspective, it does create a little bit of a tougher journey because you don't really fit in a box, right? Like everybody wants a resume that says, I'm really good at trading bonds, right? Like that's what I do. You look at my time and my career and my education, there is not a clear thread that says, this is what John's great at. So, you know, for, at different points along the way, it's sort of like, well, wait, wh- where does this guy fit? But for a founder, it was actually great because I'm pretty good at all the stuff. I'm not great at any one thing. And what do you have to be to be a founder? You have to be pretty good at a lot of stuff, right? You have to be able to figure out the marketing and the operations and the financing and, and the, the, all the different pieces well enough to get the company going, right? That's, that's the entire yeah. sort of beginning of the journey. So it's a, it's a, but, it's a blessing. But before, you started, but before you started Books, like, you know, even in your earlier career, like how did you realize or know that you were good at all those different things? Because, I mean, you know, working in like certain companies or, or, you know, in consulting, like you get exposure to all these, all these things. But I feel like until you actually do it and start a business, like you don't really get that hands-on exact experience. Maybe I'm wrong. Like, correct me if I'm wrong. But how did you like come to that realization of like, I'm good at all these different things that is required to build a successful business. Like maybe I should just go out and do it on my own. Yeah. It wasn't my realization that I thought I could do it. That made me start a company at all. I had good exposure to things at, at Bain and company. And then I worked in advertising for about two years before I came out here, got my MBA at Anderson and then worked at Disney for about six, seven years in, in corporate strategy. Each of those stops had this sort of broad mandate of like, Hey, we see the world at, a, at the sort of very top level. But it was also um, narrower than, than building a, a business, right? I had almost no operational responsibility for anything over that decade plus of experience. And so it was very different. For me, the, um, the, the need to sort of start a company came from, call it a, a desire to go from the consultant, even at Disney, I was effectively an internal consultant, to the doer, to the decision maker, right? I would work on a project for three or four months. We would go to ultimately the, the the business unit owner, whether it was a client or it was with a Disney, whatever it is, and we would say, here's our perspective on everything that we see, and then they would go make decisions on it. And I always felt a little bit unfulfilled at that moment, kind of like, ah, if they don't make this decision, I'm going to be really frustrated because I would make it this way, right? And I really had this, this itch to be the one making the decisions. Um, I ran around the Walt Disney Company for five or six months, sort of trying to find a job where I could do that, and the answer was there was none. I was the closest to the decision-making I could be at that stage of my career. And so uh, the answer was no one here, and rightfully so, is going to give me a division of Disney to run when you're 29 or whatever I was. And so how do I get that, that ability? I'm going to start a company so I can make the decisions. And that was really sort of the, the impetus for me getting going. So I'm curious, you know, knowing what you know now and having the experiences that you've had, if you were to go back, would you want to become a specialist? Uh, no way. It's, it's, it's too, it's, it's so against who I am as a person. I, I, I think it'd be easier in some ways to build a career and a path, right? If you did finance at this company and that company makes these widgets, the other company that makes those widgets is going to want you to do finance there. It's a pretty clear path, right? Or, or if you're like a marketing guru and what you love is marketing, you can kind of work your way up and have success. And then you get to a level and, and you're sort of off to the races. In a lot of ways, it's easier, but it would be completely unfulfilling for me. Right, I need something where this broader skill set is rewarded, and actually, the idea that you can be creative within it is the point. Not it's not some other thing where you, oh, I need you to be really great at skill number three, four, and five, but really, I need you to bring this breadth of experience to these problems that I'm trying to solve. 
Because ultimately what I love um, and what I think I'm good at is sort of seeing the forest with the trees, being really creative around just solving problems and then cr- getting momentum and, uh, and effort behind those with a set of resources. Like that's, that's my superpower and telling that story yeah. along the way. And so, you know, being a specialist just wouldn't satisfy those needs for me. I know internally you had this kind of desire to be in the position of like a decision maker, but externally, like, would you say, you know, you were a pretty good employee or, or did you often clash with, I don't know, upper management or like people within the companies that you were working in? Yeah, I, I was a pretty good employee. I think my boss at Disney, uh, Bonnie Madison, she's still a really good friend would say I was, I was a good employee, but behind closed doors with her and, and previously at Bain company, I would sort of let it rip, right? I would talk about what I really think we should do here. And often that wouldn't have been politically well-received at the upper levels. So I would give my opinion, but I'd give it to like her behind closed doors, right? So that that need was there, that like feeling of like, hey guys, we should really just go this way, right? We should obviously do this. Um, but I kind of kept it in check because in an organization like that, yeah, you kind of have to play the game, right? You have to behave a certain way within a set of norms. So I didn't let my sort of internal founder out to be a crazy man within the Walt Disney Company or Bain or any of those places, but but I felt myself kind of holding it back, and that was really one of those yeah. again that need to get out there and make it happen is really why the the company started to form in my mind. But but had you stayed like, did you not feel like you had a path to get to that point to be and eventually like in a seat that you were sort of making larger decisions and and or or, or was there a path you just didn't want to do it like you don't want to go down? That yeah, way? I think it was more the latter. I think the path might have been there, but one, it would have been too slow. Um, and, and two, you know, I was in that job for almost seven years and any consulting job within any organization after seven years starts to kind of repeat itself. And my need for constantly new stimulation just wasn't being met. So I probably could have hung out and gotten there eventually. Um, but it wasn't being fast enough and, and I would have been pretty bored along the way. And boredom to me is, is the worst thing, right? Like anything yeah. but boredom. And and were you someone that throughout all that time, maybe even back to college or before, like, you know, came up with different business ideas constantly? Or did you just, did it just hit you out one day where you're like, you know what, I'm not going down this like corporate path. I want to, I want to be an entrepreneur. And now I'm going to start, you know, coming up with ideas. Like, was it like a more of a long process for you, like throughout your life or just more sudden? Yeah, I, I kind of always had sort of little side hustles, little projects I thought of it as more of my creative outlet than necessarily businesses. Um, I produced some things, um, did some music stuff, was in a couple bands. Um, the uh, you know I had I had some business plans that I developed at different points. One in business school, one after business school, another one after business school, and it was always sort of dabbling. But I because of my I'm a really weird profile for a founder. I have a certain level of risk aversion. I get this from my parents. Like my mom is very conservative. Like put the money in the bank, save it up, you know, do a good job, buy a house, like do the, do the thing. And my dad's always been like the crazy dreamer thinker guy. who's like, what if I could do this? What if I could do that? And so I'm sort of a mishmash of the two where I had this desire to go out and try big things. Um, but a little bit of a conservatism in me where I was not really ready to go and make that my job. That, that seemed like too big of a leap. So often these things ended up as sort of side projects that were fun and interesting and kept my brain going but weren't necessarily all that lucrative. I might make a couple thousand dollars here, $10,000 there, but nothing that was a big deal. Um, and then while I was at Disney, I started formulating some of these kind of you know, nights and weekends saying, hey, this thing here could be a business. What would that look like? Um, and then you know, my co-founder and I uh, for Books sort of start, started talking about it 
And, um, and I had just gone to a, left Disney to go to a startup because sort of my journey was, I'm not going to jump straight into something in my garage with two people and no income. Let me try something at a relatively established startup, Series C company uh, called Shoe Dazzle at the time, and uh, and see if I love it or if it's if, if this itch is is scratched right uh, via that kind of a journey. And I fell in love with it within the first you know week. Uh, the the pace of change, the decisions being made, having the ability to make those decisions and make them quickly was was somewhat addictive for me. Did you have like a personal purpose, whether you during the time you were at Disney or Shoe Dazzle, like something? beyond work that you know you aspired to or for that you were working towards um i mean nothing nothing particular other than wanting to feel completely fulfilled every day of my job right like where i could feel like i could bring my full self and it would be rewarded instead of having to kind of only give parts of me like that was sort of the underlying need that i had um i I, I always loved being in front of crowds. I was in bands. Like I said earlier, I was in different clubs to put me up on stage, blah, blah, blah. I always liked telling stories. Uh, I wanted thing, a job where I could do that and, and people would actually need me to do that to be successful, right? Instead of sort of tamping it down to play more of the corporate game. And so that was, the, yeah. that was really the underlying need. There wasn't some other external force or anything like that. So I know I'm sure like a lot of people probably have a similar goal or desire that you and many other obviously current and past and future founders have but you know if you were to kind of think about you know you as you john and you know having this you know personal mission of i want to make sure that i feel fulfilled by the work that i do would there have been an expiration date if it didn't work out like where you're like you know what i keep trying it's not working you know I gave it all I could, but I need to, I need to make money, right? Yeah. Like, you know, it, it, cause it's easy to be a dreamer and it's easy to have all these great ideas and sure. There's the ones that end up working out, you know, thankfully for you, it did, but for majority of people, it doesn't like, that's kind of the reality, right? Like I think after many years, Pat and I have been doing this now for five years, you know, we'd like to give the full story, you know, for a lot of people, even so, for some of them that we have interviewed, it ended up not working out. And so what would you have done or at what point would you have stopped? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, for, for any one person, it's all sort of driven by your individual circumstances, right? If you're, if you're 22 years old and you can live in your parents' basement rent-free, mom's cooking the meals, you've got a long, a long runway, right? I was, you know, in my early 30s, I had a baby who was nine months old when I left my company to start Books. Uh, we had a mortgage. We just bought a house and my wife worked in public education, right? So we had a pretty narrow runway for this to either work or not. And, and mm -hmm. she and I, before I left my paying job to do this, had a pretty explicit conversation around, we have to see progress being made here towards an eventual salary that is livable for us, or we do have to shut it down, right? It can become a hobby but it's not just me here, right? I got a kid, I got a house, I got a wife. Can, can you so, run us through that conversation? Because I'm curious, because I'm sure a lot of people are probably going to have this conversation at one point or, you know, you know, should have this conversation, whether with themselves, their partner, their family, whatever. Like, I'm just curious of how that conversation went. Yeah. So we talked about it pretty explicitly in sort of the, um, in the plan. And the, you know, my ask to her was, 
I just want a shot to bet on me and see if this really can land in the way that I think it can. Because all these years I've been dreaming about it, thinking about it, but I've not just not given it a real shot. Um, so I want to go and just see what happens. And if it is miserable and there's like no chance of success or it's going to take three or five years, I'll go get a job. No problem. Like I'm not going to put all the financial burden on you forever. Like we're going to have a defined time, time frame. And she was super supportive for that. And, and God bless her. She was very much behind me on giving that a shot, but it was to an extent. And so I left uh, my job in, I think, September, October of 2012. And effectively, we said the first check-in is going to be the end of the year. Like if we launch this thing and we do $2,000 of sales in our first week, and it's January of next year, you know, three months later, and it's still $2,000 a week, that's a problem, right? If we're not seeing it move up into the right in the way that we need it to, to give us confidence that there's going to be something on the other side, I'm going to go get a job in January. Um, we got to January. We were doing like $50,000 a month in revenue. The first month we did like six or eight. We were on the right path. So we got to January. We said, okay, next milestone. We've got to raise some money for this thing because I'm making zero dollars in salary and it's not a large enough business yet for me to pay myself anything. We're plowing it all right back into the company. So let's see if I can raise a half million dollars or more before March, we'll keep going. In March, I got a commitment for a quarter million dollars. It wasn't quite the half, but we we're kind of like, oh, we're on the way. Um, and so we gave it another, like almost like a monthly extension for a bit to say, are we getting there on the fundraise? We ended up raising $1.1 million in our seed round. I was able to pay myself a salary. It was half of what I paid myself or I made at Disney, but it was a salary. It was all of a sudden we, we had some positive cash flow going. And then it was sort of like, okay, can we get to the Series A? And, and each step along the way, it was just another conversation until we got to a point where we were so large it was clearly going to work at least for some period of time and then we kind of you know took a breath and said all right we're gonna this is things gonna be a journey for a while right yeah and 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 you mentioned like everyone's circumstance is different and you talk about one of the sort of desires for you being that you wanted to be kind of like in a leadership position making decisions and that kind of stuff which you can i mean i'm sure maybe you got that when you were working at shoe dazzle or at a startup or maybe not but like that's something that you could get working at a startup and you can get paid really well and and hopefully if that startup ends up being successful and exiting or going public or whatever you can make a lot of money but like why did you decide i'm gonna you know because starting a business like posh mentioned it's not you know it's not always fun and games and it's 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 very tough thing to do because there's just so much you know, struggle that comes along with that, um, whether it's building a company, hiring and firing and managing people. And I mean, your whole livelihood is sort of based on that. And so why decide, you know, to, to, to leave shoe dazzle when you're at this kind of, you're getting the startup experience, you're, you're being in that position where you're making decisions to, to go out and do something on your own. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, and for, as far as the timing went, it was, it was sort of a, a perfect storm of, we were, we were just getting the business launched. It had a lot of sort of excitement in, in that moment, right? Um, I, uh, I didn't think I could keep it going sort of as a side project anymore. It was sort of like a hobby. It was nights and weekends at first while I, was, while I had a full-time job. I went to my bosses and was like, hey, I have this idea. Is it cool if I do it you know, on the side? And they were very supportive, um, really great, great team there. Um, but it was getting to a point where like, I, I almost couldn't anymore. There wasn't enough hours in the day. Um, we were about to launch. Um, and then the, the other part was really, I just had strong conviction that this was the right idea, right? That this was going to work, that we had an insight and a capability that was going to change the way that customers viewed this category. And so I just had a lot of conviction around it. And I felt like if I didn't go all the way, it was going to die on the vine. 
for some reason, right? If I wasn't all in, then others wouldn't be all in. If I wasn't there at three in the morning to work on the thing, because I had to wake up the next day to go to my day job, I wasn't going to be fully into this thing. And therefore it wasn't going to work. And so it was a little bit of a, of a leap of faith, but mostly a, I I wasn't willing to kind of slow it down or to inhibit the potential it had because of my personal schedule. Yeah. So I guess let's take it back a little bit to like how the idea even came about. Cause you know, ideas are literally a dime a dozen, right? Like you can sit around and just come up with ideas all day, but there's also this other piece of it of, do I care enough about this problem or this industry or this business to, to do this for the next foreseeable future? I mean, 10 years, 15 years, whatever, because yeah. it takes a while to build a business. And so what, like, how did it come about? And like, what gave you the conviction of this is what I want to be doing? Yeah. So my co-founder JP and I, um, we spent, I don't know, three or four months talking about it before we li- literally lifted a finger to do anything. It was sort of just examining the industry, examining the issues and understanding whether we thought we had a thesis that was sort of supportable. Um, every time we went out and tested that thesis, we got feedback that said, you guys are on the right track. We talked to customers, talked to wholesalers, talked to farmers. Uh, we just sort of investigated the heck out of the industry. And every time we came back going, this would make this better, this would make this better, this would make this better. So we were getting a lot of validation from the market saying, hey, this this thing could have some legs, right? Um, for For me where I got you know, sort of uniquely excited was we were bringing something to this space that is pretty rare, right? Agricultural spaces don't tend to be super technologically and especially software heavy. There's lots of big businesses built in that space. I'm not saying there aren't. But on the margin, you get a lot more technology and sciences and biotech and all the other things than you get in flower farming, right? So we had a novel approach as well, and that was really interesting and exciting to me. Um, and then as a brand guy, you know, I looked out at the space, it's $100 billion globally, it's $18 billion in the US, it's a really big market. And it was so weird to me that there wasn't sort of the, the large aspirational premium brand that you have in every other category. Uh, it made no sense as a brand guy from Disney, it was like, you know, whatever, motorcycles, Harley, coffee, Starbucks, you can, na- you can go through every other consumer category and name the brand. In flowers, you can't. And people would say, oh, 100 flowers. 70-some percent of 100 Flowers revenue is not flowers. They're not a flower company. They are a asset-like gifting platform. And so to me, it was sort of like there's this – the opportunity was almost too big to not go after it. It was like how, how can this be with $18 billion and this brand doesn't exist? Let's go build it. So the, uh, the conviction came from a lot of time researching it and sort of getting validation. Um, my co-founder's insights on that side were absolutely crucial because he was – from the industry as a, as a flower farmer at the time. And then just this big gap really made it sort of hard to resist. So I'm not sure if you could actually answer this question or not, but you know, I'm a pretty brutally honest guy and I just ask everything like that comes to my head. Do you actually give a shit about flowers at that point in time or did you just see it as an opportunity? Yeah, so I would say it's both. So I didn't grow up like my co-founder living and, and, play, and working and playing on a flower farm. Right. It, yep. Flower farming and the industry is in his blood, literally, like familial generations. Right. For him, the flowers are the point. Um, for me, uh, flowers had played sort of critical roles at different moments in my life where I sort of saw the power that the product could have in the world and was very influenced by it. Like I have a rose back here on my, on my, uh, on my shelf from my grandmother's wedding. She and I were really close. Not wedding, sorry, funeral. Um, she and I were really close. I've kept that flower since I was 17 years old, carried it with me everywhere. Right. So the product has personal meaning to me, but what 
But that's like almost secondary to what I saw was a really interesting problem to solve. Um, and so I can get behind what we're doing because I believe in it. Um, but in my heart of hearts, why did I want to start the company? It wasn't because of that. It was because this was a fantastic problem to try to solve. Right. And I mean, the point I was trying to make is like, you know, and that's a great answer, but a lot of folks, I feel like, you know, the, the narrative is always, you know, pursue your passion. Right. And like, I find it hard to believe that, you know, except for your co-founder who grew up around flowers, like that anybody's like waking up every day and constantly thinking about fucking flowers. Like I just, it's just not the case. Like I drink water every day, but I'm not like, I'm obsessed with the water. I have to start a water brand, like every fucking founder out there that has a water brand. Right. So, you know, at what point, I guess you say, it's not necessarily about the passion of the product. I just really believe in this opportunity. Like I could grow to love it, right? Like I could grow to like the, like I'm in commercial real estate. There's nothing to be passionate about four walls and a roof, but like you get to like the industry and the, the benefits that it comes with and the people there. Right. So I guess, what are your thoughts on that for people that want to become founders or entrepreneurs or whatever? Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 I would say that I did have passion for the product, but it wasn't the primary driver. Right. Right. And, and to be honest, I have passion about a lot of things because I'm just right. interested in things in the world. Like I could probably start 30 companies that are completely, I, I'm super interested in HVAC right now. It makes no sense, right? It's HVAC. It's the like least interesting in the world, but there are problems in the way the HVAC industry works that I find fascinating. Right. And so it really depends, I think on, on your, on your sort of makeup. What I think people do too often is they go, I really love insert thing. And so they go, that's my passion. So therefore I have to build a company in insert thing or whatever it is. And unfortunately you might be loving something where there isn't a super compelling problem to solve, or you're incapable of solving that problem. So you're banging your head against the wall, trying to figure out how to build a new toy for seven-year-olds. And either you don't have the capability or there really isn't a problem to be solved. Right. And so too often, and and that's the other thing, just for, forget about even starting companies. People go, oh man, I really love music. I'm going to be a CPA for Universal Records. And it's like, you're doing accounting. Like Mm -hmm. you're not doing music. Find another way to satisfy that passion and get a job that really makes your brain work, right? And I think that's where too often the subject matter gets too much play when really it's about what makes your brain happy, right? Like for me, it's really big, wide, disparate problems that need a little bit of a touch to figure out a solution. For somebody else, it might be more specialization, or might be marketing, or might be engineering, whatever it might be. Finding a yep. way to to understand yourself well enough to say how how often will my brain fire in a happy way if I do this is really the problem you're trying to solve from a career perspective. Right. You know, something we hear a lot, especially like from VCs or investors, is you know, you know, having this like founder market fit, right? Like, is the founder someone who really knows something deeply about an industry, has connections, has some leg up, right? Like they're starting at level five when someone else would start at level zero, right? And and it's and it makes sense. I mean, it's very str- it's a strategic way to start a business because, you know, you you have some something to start with. Um, and obviously, you know, you being someone who is like more of a generalist and having all these different interests and passions, this is kind of the the thing that is I feel like a little bit difficult. But you kind of were able to satisfy that by partnering with someone who had more industry knowledge in the space, right? Like JP. So how did you guys end up meeting? And was that something you were aware of? Like this is someone that obviously knows deeply about, you know, the space that we could kind of have this good synergy. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I definitely borrowed all of that from him, right? That's why he was a co-founder, not an employee was, he was bringing all of this industry connection, passion, knowledge, the way it all worked. Right. Um, 
And so we actually met as, uh, as freshmen at Notre Dame. Um, I started a band and he was the first member. He was the guitarist. And so from 18 years old till now, he's actually visiting from Ecuador right now. He's staying with me. Uh, we've been really good friends. Um, and so even back then when he was 18, 19, 20 years old, he would talk about how he's going to move back to Ecuador someday and run a flower farm. It was his passion and his dream as a teenager. And we were just like, you're so weird. Like, let's go try to get a fake ID, right? Like, it was like, what, what, why are you talking about this when you're, you're at this age? But that was genuinely his life's dream. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so it, it was not a thing that I really thought much about over the course of the next 15, 20 years until um, we started talking about it in the context of the business that he was running. He had moved back. He was running a flower farm. And he was seeing these inefficiencies in the supply chain. And he's like, hey, look, you, you work at an e-commerce startup. Like, is anything you're learning there applicable to us? And it was more of just like a, hey, can we chit-chat about this? And then over time, that evolved into, yes, this solution should exist. Why does it not? Maybe we could build it, right? And that was sort of the natural evolution of the conversation. You know, I'm curious, um, did you, did you, like, did getting your MBA help you more than it or hurt you to be a founder? Because there are all these, you know, we always hear these narratives of like, you know, should you get your MBA? Is MBA, is, is getting an MBA good or bad for starting a business? Because you learn all these business things, but Sometimes the naivete is it helps, you know, when when getting started. Um, so I'm just curious for you, like, did, would you say that it helped you? It absolutely helped. I mean, i th- I think that the, I think the reason MBAs get a bad rap, sort of in the startup ecosystem, is that a lot of the curriculum isn't directly applicable, right? You're learning how to do finance for a Fortune 500 company, not for a company with three people that's going to go out of business in a week, right? But what I found was, one, those two years were super formative for me in figuring out that eventually I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I tried to start a business while I was there as the first time because I had the freedom, the time I was living on loans. I had like class for three or four hours a day. And then I had all this time, which you don't ever have, right? Once you get a job, you have a family, there's this, this freedom to explore and try things was really great. Um, but then, you know, I, I sort of advise and work with a lot of founders and I've worked with folks who have undergrad degrees in business, those that don't, those that have MBAs, those that don't. And, you know, consistently I see those that don't have that advanced degree struggling more with the basics. How do I build a financial forecast? I don't know anything about Excel. And like, they'll figure it out, right? But the level of inefficiency is high because they haven't had the exposure before. So net net on the margin, would I prefer for a founder to have it? Yes. But is that like the thing that makes it work? No, absolutely not. Like clearly, right? Because those that are really driven and, and just smart enough to figure things out find ways to complement the, the skills that they're lacking through people or process, whatever it might be, right? So same, same exact founder, if I had the choice, yes, I'd love for them to have an MBA. Do you need one to start a company and be successful? Absolutely not. So ultimately, you know, you obviously you guys launched Books. What, what was it? And obviously, what has it become since that point? Has it changed much? Yeah, so our thesis was, you know, this supply chain in floral, this $18 billion market in the U.S. has about six layers in it. Farmers, importers, wholesalers, wholesalers, florists, order gatherers. And they're all sharing the value chain. And the thesis was, could that value chain be a lot more efficient if it was all under a single roof rather than have all these disparate players buying and reselling the product, right? It's a tale as old as time in business. Uh, um, the... The idea that we had was let's deploy technology at farms around the world and let the technology really make the market rather than having this buying and reselling take place. And then let's route those orders to the farms for direct ship to the customer. 
Uh, at the time, we positioned the whole thing around this volcano, which is where all of our farms were located. It's called Cayambe outside of Quito, Ecuador, which is where my co-founder is from. And, um, and that was the initial thesis. It's, it's not the dramatically different today. It's just much larger and way more complex, right? Sort of the beginning, we started with three farms. Now we work with 50 farms around the world that ship 2 billion stems a year plus. Um, the, the, the supply chain is sort of the same way that we envisioned it, but we have more nodes of distribution as well, right? We have distribution nodes across the country. We have a store here in Los Angeles. It's our first store. There'll be more stores coming soon. Um, so this, call it the level of complexity of the ecosystem has gotten bigger, but the same thesis applies, which is let's let the software do the heavy lifting around what flowers should be where and when so that the customer gets something fresher, fully transparently sourced from sustainably farms, and we eliminate all the waste. And that has largely proven true. Um, and we built a pretty big business on the back of that, uh, on that thesis. Yeah. So when looking at the entire, you know, puzzle, I guess, um, you know, you, you look at the supply chain. Why did you decide to go, de- you know, direct to consumer from the beginning versus just going B two B and like trying to solve the at least the sourcing and all that kind of stuff, but having like your distribution be, you know, like was it because you th- you felt like there was a missing brand? I, I know you mentioned like there wasn't like an industry leading brand. Was that the primary driver of of that of that or or that was, was there a, other, another? Yeah, that was a, that was a big part of it. Was was this belief that you could build something that stood for something more than just sort of cheap prices in the category. Generally, it's viewed as a commoditized product, so you end up competing on promotional deals, right? That's like sort of what the industry has been for a long time. I fundamentally just didn't believe in that, especially coming from Disney where brand can have so much power. So the question was like, can we create reasons to buy that aren't price? Sustainability, quality, freshness, accuracy, all these things. Uh, Storytelling around the volcano. And the answer to that unequivocally is yes. We've got wildly loyal customers who will spend thousands upon thousands of dollars with us over the course of their lifetime. So we proved that out. That was probably the biggest reason why. Um, the second was, it was what I knew, right? Coming from Disney, branded consumer experiences is where I came from. So I was automatically biased towards that solution. Uh, it's something that I found interesting and wanted to work on. If you had said like, hey, the better solution here, John, is to build a wholesale machine that does X, Y, and Z. I could have, I could have maybe gotten there, but I wasn't going to lean there at first. Right? The fun part for me was create the brand yeah. from scratch, get the pictures of the volcano, you know, talk to people about how the volcano erupted and what does that mean for you as a consumer. That was all the fun stuff for me. Yeah, and you talk about like incumbents like one eight hundred flowers, and and that's obviously something important to consider when you're starting a business. Like, who's in the industry right now, and are they doing a good job at it, or what's kind of missing? Like, what was the approach with you that you thought, you know, we'd come in from a different angle and like try to capture the market this way? Like, what was the consumer behavior that you saw or tried to kind of unlock that, you know, wasn't being met or or serviced by like a a company like 1-800-Flowers? Yeah, I mean, we did a decent amount of of consumer research, nothing super sophisticated because we had no money at the time. Um, But we spent a lot of time looking at review sites and just looking at customer satisfaction in general in the industry. We ordered a bunch of times from kind of everyone and said, like, what's the experience versus my expectation? And we just reviewed every single page of every single site. And what we came down to was there's a way that this industry kind of works, right? Whether it's Winter Flowers, Epsi, Teleflora, a million other websites that there are in this category. because There's almost no barriers to entry to being a order gatherer for florists. It's, it's, it's pretty easy to get into that space. So there's lots of places to look. 
And we saw a couple of things that were very consistent. Everything was discounted all the time. Like there was no such thing as a full price. There was always discounts. But the price that you were, was advertised was never the checkout price. And it was typically like 2X. So if there, it was advertised at $80 on, on sale for 50 bucks, when you check out, it's 93 or whatever. Why is that? Right. Uh, because that's the way the funnels all worked because someone somewhere optimized those funnels and said, this is the best way to get the maximum value out of a customer, right? And so uh, across isn't all that like a websites- and, Isn't that like a classic bait and switch? Like that doesn't make much sense. That's <laughs> absolutely what we called it. We were like, don't, deal, don't go for, don't fall for the bait and switch, right? Um, but you saw it across all of these websites. It was very standard. Um, so we said, we're getting a price in an ad. We're not paying that price. We don't like that. We're ordering pink tulips. We're getting yellow uh, sunflowers. We don't like that. We don't know where they're coming from. We don't like that. Um, and we just started effectively building our brand around all the things that we didn't like and giving the opposite. So we started our business. There was one price, $40. No upsells, no other things you could buy. You could buy one size and every single thing was 40 bucks. Why? Because everyone else had a thousand options or 50 upsells and lots of different pricing structures and fees. And we said free shipping, no shipping charges ever, Right. A lot of these things have changed over time, but the core insight of let's just make it simple and easy hasn't gone away. Uh, we have a lot more selection now. We started with 40 bouquets. Now we've got probably 100, 120. Uh, we, had, we had one size. Now we have three sizes because over time we heard from customers like, that's the regular size isn't big enough for me. Like, I want to go big here, man. It's Valentine's Day for my girl. Like, I want to go triple, right? So we have the grand size for those that want to go really big. So we evolved the business over time, but what we felt like was there was an opportunity to sort of take the way things were done. And because it was so sort of homogeneous across what we saw for the competitors in the industry, it felt like there's an opportunity here to actually stand out where we don't need to have big marketing budgets. And, and that worked really well. The first couple of years of the business, we grew to multi-million dollars of revenue with no marketing budget. We didn't have the cash in the bank to do it. Um, so how are people so, finding out about it early on? Like what was the biggest driver of customer acquisition? It was almost all word of mouth in the first year. Um, 2013 was people ordering, posting on social media, talking about it. This was so good. Look at how long they lasted. They're so beautiful. You can see the stamp from Ecuador to show that it came actually from Ecuador, right? A cool user experience that people talked about. And then in 2014, I went on Shark Tank. And that was sort of the next big leg was Shark Tank was the gift that still keeps on giving to this day 10 years later, um, eight years later, I guess. But um, but really a, uh, a big sort of stamp on the business, even though we didn't get a deal on the show, uh, being on the show, especially back in 2014, was a really big deal. And that definitely put us on the map for consumers in, in a big way. So, John, I know it's been several years, obviously, that you guys have been running the business and still going strong. Um, I think it was, what, mid-2020 where you, I don't want to say take a step back, but you no longer were the CEO. I think you just kind of took on that founder chairman role. Uh, you know, I have a specific question and a general question tied to that. One, when did you know that it was time to kind of take a step back uh, and become the chairman versus CEO day to day. And then on the general question side is when should founders take a step back, um, you know, or should they at all? Um, So I'm just curious to hear your insight there. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, there's no one, one size fits all in this for sure. It's very personal and it's very dependent on the, on the type of company and the type of founder. When, when we started the business, call it 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, it was, it was a perfect job for me, right? I was good at it. I loved it. 
Um, I was having the most fun I've ever had professionally. Um, when we started to get bigger was where it started to become less fun for me, right? 2016, 17, we were now crossing into like the 50, 60 people kind of range of employees. And your tongue bigger in terms of uh, number of people or revenue? Both, all of the above. The okay. revenue necessitated a lot more people, so we're scaling people, but primarily around people, right? The early days, that sort of first three to four years, it's 10, 15, 20 people, pretty pretty small team. And I grew up in an industry where you worked on small teams. Bain & Company, our teams were like right. three to 10 people. At Disney, I managed a team of three, and our overall our entire org was 50, right? From small, so, small cities to small teams. Small cities to small teams, right? And, uh, and so when we started getting up into like the 40s and 50s, the job changed pretty dramatically, right? It went from the job primarily being about getting everyone to believe and being a catalyst for creativity to a job about managing process and people, uh, people management, team growth, all these things that one, I'd never really been asked to do in my career because that's not where my experience came from. But two, I learned pretty quickly that I didn't like it. Right. And people tend to spend time doing things they love, right? I had spent all my time dabbling in creative pursuits. That's where I'm great. Um, right. I wasn't great at that and I didn't have fun with it. And I, I remember distinctly, I think it was 2017. It might've been 2018. Um, we got a, my, my board and I agreed that I should get an executive coach to be the best CEO I could be and really great guy. Spent a lot of time with him, but the first thing we did, the very first, had, thing he, did, had he ever been a CEO? Um, you know, I don't, I don't believe so. I don't believe he was a former CEO. That's what I thought. Um, but had they had this clear rubric that was, they used with like all these great founders and CEOs that have scaled companies, et cetera, et cetera, that had the eight things that they believed you have to be great at to be a great CEO. These eight things. And I went down that list and was like, hate it. Don't like it. I guess I'll deal with it. I like that one. Terrible at it. Don't want to do it. Boring. Like I looked at the whole list and I was like, if this is a CEO job, I don't want to do it. Like this is, this is not what I want to spend my time on. Um, and we, I spent the next sort of year, two years trying to learn to want to do that job. And then in 2018, I, I recognized like, nope, this isn't what I want to do. Now, looking back on it now, there's lots of different types of CEOs and some are great at those eight things and some are terrible at those eight things. I'm not saying you have to be great at those eight things, but it was a really sort of a, a moment where I took to reflect on what I wanted to spend my time doing. And I didn't want to spend my time doing those things. And for better or for worse, our company needed those things. We needed structure. We needed process. We needed uh, a really organized team sort of dynamic. Like that's not what I want to spend my time doing. I wanted to come up with new technologies to solve new problems. And so, you know, we got to a place where I went to the board in 2018 and said, hey, I'm kind of ready to make a change here, but the business wasn't. And we all agreed, like the business was not ready. And so it was like, a, hey, put this on the shelf for now. Let's get the business to a place where it's ready. So it was about 12, 18 months from that point where we got to a, a scale and a team around me that could sort of handle that transition. Right. And that's when we really started going out and in earnest going out and looking for an executive to join me to, to sort of run the, the company from there on. Did you enjoy working with the board? I mean, you're a founder. Like, what, did you need a board? Um, we needed a board because we needed money. And no one was going to give us $80 million without taking some, some level of operational control. Um, some people can get away from that, right? If you're the founders of Snap, you can do a lot of things because you're the founders of Snap. That wasn't us. Right. And so, um, yeah, like, look, I, I've, I'm really good friends personally and professionally with a couple of my board members. We've had a formal board since 2014 when we closed our Series A. Um, uh, it, there's, there's pros and cons to, to any of it, right? It's great to have 
a check on your conscience, on your gut, whenever you're, you're building a business, especially of, at some scale, it's really helpful. It's great to have connections into their networks to help out. At the same right. time, it's harder to make decisions, right? Now, no longer is it point and shoot. I'm going this way for sure, guys. It's let's talk about this thing. Let's see what we can do. And so it definitely changes the dynamic a lot. Um, but I, I always definitely stress with founders, you know, especially in today's culture, everyone just sort of goes immediately to, I have to raise a ton of money, right? Like everyone goes straight there because it's been so glorified in the press and like, look at this round and it's so much money and all this stuff. Um, but I pressure test with a lot of founders like, look, if you have to, sure, go raise money, but understand what it comes with and what it prevents. If you get the $10 million of revenue, your company's worth $30 million and you raised money at $20 million a year ago, pre-money valuation, you ain't selling. You might own 80% of it. You ain't selling. You could get rich. You ain't selling. And so really understand what you're trying to build. If you want a 10 to 15 year journey, if you're going for a, you know, a 500 million plus exit, raise money. If you're thinking I'll build this thing to 5, 10, 15 million and sell it, don't raise money. Or if you do raise it from like your uncle's friend who is a doctor who's got an extra 100,000 laying around and not the VC so that you can maintain that level of flexibility and control in yep. case that's what you want to do. And if you don't know, don't take money. Take your time, figure out what you're building towards. It also might turn out that the only way you can build the company you envision is to take money, which was the case with us. I thought we could do it bootstrapped. I got a year in, I had one developer. He was working forever, just not stopping. The poor guy was just grinding away. And I was like, I need six more developers and I can't afford it, right? So it was a necessity yeah. for us to be able to build what we're going to build, but it's, it's definitely a point of, of focus for, for me when I advise founders in the class that I teach. Uh, it's a, it's a really key decision point that everyone's faced with. Yeah. And then, so I saw like, um, I think after you stepped down, you kind of, you know, went to the other side of the fence and became an investor yourself. And, and it sounds like you're kind of investing in certain startups as, in the seed stage. What's kind of been your approach there? What are you looking for typically? Um, and what are you most excited about? Yeah. So, you know, we have a pretty broad thesis around sort of the pandemic and post-pandemic world and kind of underserved markets in general. I put underserved in quotes um, for a reason. The, the pandemic changed everything, as we all know, but the amount of, of what, sophisticated... What's the, what's the pandemic? Sorry. What's the pandemic? Sorry, it's this thing. <laughs> um, it really changed the way people think about living and working, and, and it has it's sort of an unprecedented wave of, of sophisticated engineering and technology talent leaving certain places and going to everywhere, right? This was already happening as universities have invested more and more in entrepreneurship and engineering and software uh, programming. Um, pockets of talent have sort of started to be everywhere, but there's still like a gravitational pull to New York and, and San Francisco primarily. Um, but on the back of COVID, this distribution of that talent paired with satellite campuses for Amazon and Apple and all the sort of mega tech firms is creating pockets of talent that were never there before. And they're going to start starting companies in those places because they just bought a house in the suburbs of Austin or in Raleigh, Durham or wherever they went to. Um, so do you so think there are still pockets? They're just micro pockets or are they just fully dispersed at this point? The, uh, it, there's definitely still pockets. There's more concentration in some places than others. But our thesis is primarily that over the next 20 years, you're going to see as much innovation coming out of everywhere else as you're seeing in the major hubs. Right now, we're not there yet. But as a whole, you take all the other sort of tier two cities in quotes again, uh, you're going to see some major companies coming out of there at a pace that you haven't in the past because of this influx of talent uh, due to the pandemic. 
And then the underserved part is really a thesis around value, right? Like everyone's been chasing companies. I've watched pre-money valuations go crazy. You know, we raised our first uh, round of capital back in 2014, our Series A, you know, at, at a fraction of what similar companies today raise. And part of that is just has been nine years. So time has passed, certainly, but also just the amount of money chasing the best companies has increased dramatically as well. So we see an opportunity to get in at more reasonable pre-money. Now, the market's also taking care of some of this as well, but even versus that more reasonable pre-money. And when you look at outcomes for venture capital funds, a lot of it is driven by the pre-money valuation you get. Um, and so those are sort of the overlapping uh, sort of two key pieces of what we're doing. It's still technology investing. It's still seed stage, early stage. Um, it's We do everything except for sort of hardcore biotech or cannabis, those types of things. Uh, but anything that is software or software enabled is really interesting for us. Um, and so that that general trend is really what I'm most excited about. But I think the hardest part about it is predicting and, and understanding where we are on the curve, right? How quickly is it going to happen from here is really anybody's guess. We want to be sort of the, one of the earliest and first to be on that train. And certainly others have been there before us. Um, but uh, but we're excited about what that's going to bring over the next 10, 20 years. What's your favorite flower? My favorite flower is the is the gilly flower, which is also known as a carnation. Okay. Um, the carnation gets this bad rap because mm-hmm. it's like, you know, the flower everyone gave to their teacher in 1982, yeah. right? Where, where it's like cheap. Yep. Um, but there are some amazing, amazing colors and sort of combinations of, of carnations. And okay. they last for freaking ever. Like you can give it to your, your, your mom, your sister, your wife, and it'll be there three weeks later. It's one of the best values from a price perspective. The brand of it really just got crushed in the 80s. And that's sort of the core problem. But we've brought it back in some interesting ways with books. And they always tend to be you know, really good sellers. So it's, uh, it's not the fanciest of flowers, but I think it's the best. Interesting. I like it. Yeah. Well, John, this has been so much fun just, you know, chatting with you and learning your story and and kind of, you know, everything that comes with building this amazing company that you've built and, you know, excited to see what comes next for you, just whether it's for books or investing or what have you and uh, looking forward to keeping in touch. Absolutely. Appreciate it. And check us out at books.com, B-O-U-Q-S.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, John Tabis, T-A-B-I-S. Appreciate it, guys. Love it. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.